Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us to this place and for your word, and we pray that uh, we would have our eyes open uh, to what you're doing in our midst by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in uh, Acts chapter 19. Sorry, I, I keep punning this passage, not because uh, I'm afraid to handle it, uh, but just because of circumstance and scheduling. Uh, and it's, it, is, it is sort of a third rail uh, passage, uh, and we're going to get into that. Some of you are going to wish that I had never brought certain things up uh, this morning, uh, and some of you are going to have your eyes open to some crazy things, but that's okay, because I think uh, knowledge is power. Who said that, knowledge is power? I, th I feel like it was like they said that after school on ABC, knowledge is power. Um, anyway, um, uh, it is, and, and it helps with discernment. So let's look at Acts chapter 19, uh, 11 through 20. So that Paul's in Ephesus, just to give you some background, uh, and um, he's just baptized uh, some folks, and uh, they've received the Holy Spirit, and uh, they began to speak in tongues and prophesy, and now the next part. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, how'd you like that on your business card? Uh, undertook, undertook, let's just let God speak, Andrew be quiet. Uh, under, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. Well, this is a crazy passage, uh, and it's a lot. And you, I hope, can understand why. I, I wouldn't mind skipping over this. Uh, th there's a lot uh, here, uh, but let's go ahead and, and let's dig in because there is something to be said. I and mean, we're presented with this picture of aprons and handkerchiefs. It's like you've woken up in the middle of the night and turned on the television. And there's a guy that says, for every $30 you send, I'm going to send you this blessed handkerchief. And if you ever do wake up in the middle of the night, that's what you... What do you see in the middle of the night on the television? You see preachers and craftmatic adjustable bed. Why? Because you're awake either because you're dealing with something or you, you have a back problem, right? So th there's a reason why that stuff is on in the middle of the night. And so with, um, with uh, what is, what's going on here with, with Paul and these miracles? Well, what's Paul's profession? What's he do for a living? He's a tent maker, right? He makes that very clear that he's not trying uh, to make any money off of his ministry and won't accept money. So in order to take care of himself, he makes tents wherever he goes. And he has some friends in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, who are actually in the tent making business too. And what he's talking about are the aprons and the handkerchiefs that he would use while making tents. 
So it's him wiping his brow. Uh, these are, are not sort of nice little embroidered uh, things. This is kind of gross, right? There are these soiled rags uh, that are being taken to people. I think the reason for that is just because of that. These are ordinary, everyday things, right? It's going to be very difficult to look at something like that and venerate it, right? It's, it's not something that is of beauty, but in fact is something unsightly. Uh, one of the most, I was not prepared for this as a father, uh, but if you've ever had a child who has a particular connection to a stuffed animal or a little blanket, uh, which uh, used to be cute and you could kind of pick it up and it smelled like your kids, uh, now it smells like death. <laughs> and, uh, and I found one once, not because I was looking for it, but because I smelled it uh, on the other side of the room. And, uh, and you get rid of it, right? You, 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 want, to, you want to burn it. Uh, and in the same way, these things that people are taking from Paul uh, that is healing them um, with just the touch of the skin um, are not pretty nice objects that you would want uh, to venerate. Uh, this is a story that has precedent in Jesus' gospel. There was the woman with the issue of blood. Remember uh, the official whose son was uh, nearing death uh, or the girl was nearing death? Yes. And um, the woman in the crowd reached out and touched the hem of his garment, thinking, if I just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be healed. And of course, uh, she was. Now, what healed her? What healed these people? Right, faith. Right, faith in what? Right, faith in God. Not, not the actual garment or the handkerchief. Uh, or, or the apron, uh, but faith. And not just that, but we see this with other apostles too, like Peter, where Peter's shadow being cast on somebody uh, has made them well. Why? Because this is the apostolic era where these types of things are meant, these gifts are meant to validate the office of apostle that they hold. Right? Uh, I don't believe that that office is alive anymore. Uh, I think that that was, was restricted uh, to the time. Now, I do believe in the apostolic office in the sense of we are successors to the apostles in the apostolic teaching, right? The teaching goes on. Uh, but trust me, there's not going to be a market for handkerchiefs from Andrew. Um, it's just not going to happen. Uh, now, that's not me limiting God, but what it is is understanding that God went out of his way to do particular things in that era in order to, the, to get the gospel out. And that's just it. So when you have a healing, even today, um, if you are attributing it to a handkerchief or, any, or an individual, the focus is on the wrong place. So in John's gospel, John never uses the word miracle. What, does he use the, what, does he, what word does he use to talk about miracles? Signs. And what does a sign do? It points to something. Right? It, it points to something. And people were always getting this wrong. Uh, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes and the next morning they got up, uh, we remember there are leftovers, there are leftovers, and as they're crossing back, the crowds woke up, where's Jesus, let's go find him. And why do they come back? Jesus says to us why they come back. Because you're hungry again. Right? You, 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 you saw the leftovers. You want me to feed you again. It, it had nothing to do uh, with the person who had multiplied the loaves and the fishes. It had everything to do with their own flesh. Uh, and uh, in the same way, uh, we live in a world, especially for those of us who have been very desperate for any type of healing, 
uh, or God's intervention, uh, we will go to great lengths. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, it still is sometimes the practice to do this. When the priest comes forward and approaches the altar, they kiss the altar. Why? Because traditionally there's a relic in it, a piece of a saint. Uh, but it helped get me some perspective when I had a professor at UVA who also happened to be an Augustinian monk. He was great. His name was Augustine Thompson. Uh, and uh, he would never tell me his real name. Uh, but wonderful man. And it used to be that there, well, still is, there's an order of nuns whose only job is to keep relics of saints and of other things. So, you know, things like splinters from the cross or crowns from the, that may or may not be. Apparently in Europe, there are something like six or seven heads of John the Baptist floating around. Um, but you would go, and for some of the saints, you could actually attribute the, the relic to them, especially if they were more modern. And so what you have to, you used to be able just to walk in and order something up and they'd give you a little sliver of bone because they would have, say, the femur of uh, Gregory the Great. And they would take a little sliver off and they would put it in a little reliquary that you could wear around your neck or take it back to your church. Uh, now you need a letter from your bishop requesting it and you have to arrange it and it's a little bit more involved. But Augustine Thompson went in and he was so excited and he said, Sister, I'm here to petition for a relic from St. Thomas Aquinas, who they definitely had because he was pretty modern. Uh, and the nun looked at him and shook her head and said, Oh, Father, I'm so sorry. We ran out of him a long time ago. Um, and, um, well, you know, uh, uh, there you go. Uh, there you go. So when it comes to uh, things, it's not, uh, we're not talking about magical properties here. In fact, that's what's being criticized with the sons of Sceva, who are these itinerant Jewish exorcists. Uh, because at that day and time, I mean, there is a lot of spiritual stuff going on. Uh, I do believe, as a footnote, that there are supernatural things like this happening in the world today. I don't want to discredit that. I think that they're especially evident in areas where the gospel is not being preached. Uh, so areas that have been unreached. Uh, I really do believe that there are people in China, and I've heard, uh, heard testimonies of people saying this, where the missionary will come into the village, preach about Jesus, and someone will say, that's the guy that's in my dreams. And I really do think that God has the ability to intervene uh, in such a way. But in places like uh, where the gospel has been preached, the ordinary means by which people come to faith is through uh, the preaching of the word. So there were these itinerant exorcists uh, in uh, Jesus' day uh, that would go around and they would try to cast out demons or uh, try to deal with people that had whatever disability they had. No doubt they confused in certain times uh, a psychological problem with a demon possession, uh, but that doesn't mean that they would see something wrong and just attribute it to demonic possession, and that was that. Uh, there really were, and I still think are, demonic possessions that happen. And so uh, these guys uh, had a pretty big business. They uh, made money off of that. They were from an elite uh, Jewish family. Uh, Sceva, we don't have any record of them. Uh, and when it says Jewish high priest, that means he was of a line of a Jewish high priest. So that's uh, who these guys are. And they find out about Paul, and they hear about these handkerchiefs and these aprons, and they think, all right, leverage. Right? We, here's something that we can use, a, a new tool that seems to actually work, which means what? They haven't had much success in their work, right? So they're going to try anything. And so they do come to someone who actually is uh, possessed, 
And uh, they've been saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, well, first off, this is a big difference because uh, between Paul or Christians saying this and what they're saying, what's the difference? As a Christian, you wouldn't say the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Why? Because you preach Jesus, right? So they're basically saying, I don't believe in any of this, but if it works, it works. Very practical. And uh, so they get around it by saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And they're going around there and they finally run into one who uh, knows his business and he says, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I think at that point I would have hot-tailed it out of there. Right? That, uh, that would not be a word of comfort or a question that I would stick around to answer. I would get out of there immediately, but they didn't even have time to do that. Jesus I know. Uh, you know we read in the Bible that uh, even uh, the demons and the devil uh, believe uh, on the Lord Jesus. Uh, I mean, in the sense that they acknowledge He is Lord, uh, that He has dominion. Uh, he is who He says He is. Uh, and uh, and all, Paul is his messenger. That's recognizable. But you, I have no idea who you are. And the man in whom was the evil spirit, he leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. And I don't know where this... I, there, obviously, there's a comma there, but I don't know what happens in the midst of that comma because they run out of the house naked and wounded. I don't know where that comes from. But that's just basically uh, what it's alluding to is that they're so desperate to get away that they're leaving their, they're, they're pulling off their jackets in order to get away. They're pulling off their clothes as this guy is uh, taking them down and overpowering all of them by supernatural strength. And so this story is told far and wide becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. This is the talk of the city. And what happens? Fear falls upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, there's the difference, right? It wasn't Paul that was extolled. It was the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and they were afraid. There's another story like this in Acts. Remember um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira? who lied uh, to the Lord and to the church about how much they would give and, um, and what happened. Struck dead by the right. yeah, struck dead. Uh, for some reason, we don't use that passage for stewardship someday. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and it says that fear seized them all. I mean, there's a reason why it happened. Uh, a sense of, uh, yes, gulp, uh, this is scary stuff, uh, but also understanding uh, who it is we're talking about here. Uh, we're not talking about some itinerant preacher who was saying, hey, you know, if you like what I got to say, you should buy into it. But if you want to go down to the Temple of Diana and, and, and hedge your bets there, that's fine too. Uh, not at all. This is God in the flesh, God who has come amongst us. I was reading something that Pope Francis uh, wrote recently, uh, and uh, it was something about looking into the face of Jesus and what do you see? when you look into the face of Jesus, and the very first thing he said was, you see God. That's who you see uh, in the face of Jesus. And so uh, people uh, have a healthy respect uh, for this name. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Meaning, this is a work of the Lord. Uh, because all of us are syncretistic to a degree or another. 
Uh, I'm not particularly superstitious, but I'll be the first to admit that I touch wood every once in a while. Uh, when I go over railroad tracks, even if I'm driving, Lauren, it drives Lauren nuts, I lift my feet up and try to find a screw to touch. Do y'all, does anyone else do that? Well, it's just a Virginia thing. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, you know, don't step on a crack or you'll, right? Yeah, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, it's, um, why do we do stuff like that? Or why do we, you know, a lot of us, because a lot of us do believe in fate, right? We, we, we believe in, in, in that sort of thing and we're gripped by fear and, and we try to hedge our bets. Why we don't walk under ladders. Now, I don't think that any of you is uh, a pagan uh, who is putting your trust in something other than the Lord Jesus, uh, but it's simply an example of how our hearts are drawn away from God and how we often dabble in different practices. But the thing about it is, is that when Jesus, who is the light of the world, when He begins to shine, uh, it, it, it brings to light uh, those things that have dwelt in the darkness. Uh, one of the worst jobs I had is a kid, you know, during the summertime, we tried to get out of the house before sunup because if we stuck around too long, we had, we had jobs to do around the house. And one of them sounded like some cool hand Luke punishment where my mom said, I want you to move those cinder blocks there and then move them over there. I thought, well, there's no good reason, but there's no reasoning with, with your mom. And so uh, I did it. And the worst part was um, I would get down to the bottom and I would lift up. It was a, on a piece of plywood. And I lifted up the plywood. And every creepy crawly thing from snakes to spiders to whatever was underneath of there. And as soon as I lifted it up and shed the light on it, what did they do? Gone. Right? They, 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 they took off uh, in all directions. And in the same way, when the light of the gospel is shown in the dark places of our lives, it scatters. But here's the promise, is that about, a, uh, about three months later, uh, that place was now going to be used to stack firewood. And so I was stacking firewood and went back, and where it was ground and brown and dead was now what? Lush and green. Right? Why? Because the light had shone upon it. And so this is a bold move. This is a courageous move to be able to admit, you know, I'm believing on the Lord Jesus, but I've got these hedging options uh, over here in my house uh, that are of no small price. They're valuable. And so those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Uh, not just that, but realizing next to Jesus, what good are those things? What, what good is the alternative if Jesus is enough? And that's just the problem. Is Jesus enough for us uh, in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our trials? And so they burned them in the sight of all, uh, and uh, they counted the value of them, 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Right? That's the real victory. Right? That, that the word of the Lord continued to prevail and to increase uh, in Ephesus. That's the point of the handkerchiefs. That's the point of the aprons. Now, um, today, it's not just people who uh, are on the television in the, uh, the middle of the night, but even in the church today, uh, there's a thinking, a way of thinking loose uh, that dates back uh, to the birth of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. And this is going to be the part where you say, I wish you hadn't said that because I was wholly unaware of this until then. And that is the school of thought that believes that physical manifestations of the spirit, tongues especially, and other spiritual gifts, are the necessary evidence 
of the Spirit at work. And so if those gifts, especially tongues, are not made manifest, then the Spirit's not present. Let me give you uh, a sad example. Uh, we had a, uh, this happens every once in a while, uh, someone in our high school ministry go to another high school ministry in town and come back and say to us, well, I found out I wasn't a Christian. Why are you not a Christian? Well, I thought I was a Christian, but I don't speak in tongues, and I was told that because of that, I'm not a Christian. Right? And I'm not talking about a fringe ministry uh, here in Birmingham uh, that is saying that, uh, but that's a pretty mainstream understanding amongst some. And so having them understand that the physical manifestation of the Spirit, if there is, ought to be the fruit of the Spirit, not necessarily the gifts. And Paul says it himself in 1 Corinthians that you should eagerly desire uh, these gifts. These are things that you should want. Uh, but no one ever says the manifestation of the Spirit and how we know that He's present in your life is if you have the gift of administration. And nobody says that, right? It's the, and Paul says it, look, you want the fantastic gifts. Right? You want to be the one who's casting demons out, who's out actually able to subdue the demon that the sons of Sceva were not able to do. And it's also uh, you know, thought that uh, there is a, uh, that you can be a Christian without being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible's not aware of that. Now, are there times in our lives where the Holy Spirit manifests him in a supernatural way that is different? Yes, I do believe that. Uh, I believe that that the Holy Spirit continues to intervene in our lives. You might be given uh, a word to speak uh, of comfort to someone. Uh, you uh, might uh, indeed be led. I, I mean, we believe this. Otherwise, why would we pray? God, lead me in the direction you want me to go in. Right? We, we do that with a trust that the Holy Spirit actually is going to work through us and others and speak uh, to us. But in the past 25 years, what I've encountered is that the understanding uh, is that there's an understanding of deliverance from various and sundry spiritual conditions, and that's become the focus in healing ministries, especially in the English-speaking world. And so you'll hear things like generational sin, binding and loosing, breaking of curses, among other things, are the focus of these ministries. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that the Holy Spirit is involved in such ministry here in the Acts of the Apostles and also in our lives today. However, I would note some caution. I've witnessed firsthand spiritual abuse in the name of the Holy Spirit, and I mean that. It's spiritual abuse. In a word, this is blasphemy. I've heard people tell others that they have cancer because their father was a Freemason. And in another instance, a fellow staff member of mine, not at this church, uh, came to me to tell me uh, that she had a young woman in her office whose father had committed suicide and she was terribly distraught. And would I come and speak with her and pray with her? Well, of course. And on the way uh, to meet this young woman, uh, my colleague said to me that um, all was not lost. I've told her that her father, even though he's dead, he has three days to turn to the Lord Jesus before judgment. And I stopped dead in my tracks. You said, what? She repeated herself. I mean, my mind was racing. It landed on Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed once for man to die and then judgment. And so I asked her, why would you say such a thing that's not presented to us in the Bible? And she replied, the Lord gave me a special word, and I spoke it to her. 
Well, what she'd done is she'd abused this poor girl who was given uh, one, if her father was trusting in the Lord Jesus, regardless of how he died, he's in the arms of Jesus, right? There's no negotiation uh, before the throne room of God. Uh, If there's anything, it's uh, a negotiation that goes in your favor, but it's between the father and the son, and the son is the one who takes the heat for you in order that you might be in relationship with the father. That's what happens. And I do want to say just a little aside about that because this girl was under the impression that because her father died of suicide that he was going to go straight to hell. And that's not true. Uh, I think that it's not an issue. I think it's a biblical uh, understanding of suicide in the same way that any disease can lead to death, that it's a psychological struggle And I think that we should all be aware of it and uh, come alongside those who really struggle uh, with it and wonder if uh, their own life is even worth it. And if you're a normal human being, uh, who of us have honestly not contemplated it at one point or another? Who have said, no, maybe life would be better without me, even just for a fleeting moment. Uh, But we live in a world, and especially in the church, where people aren't aren't able to be that honest. Why? Because we think... That's the worst possible thing that you could do is to commit suicide. It is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, It's awful. Uh, But we ought to respond not in judgment but in compassion uh, for those who struggle with it, and we need to come alongside them. That's my little footnote. So, um, but things like my friend who was told that they have cancer because of Freemasonry. Uh, Well, is there such a thing as generational sin? Yes, the Bible does teach that there is generational sin, but not in that regard. Uh, We see this in own patterns of behavior, uh, even in our own lives. Uh, If you have a family that are just awful pagans, uh, guess what? It's probably likely that the children are going to be awful pagans unless the Lord Jesus himself intervenes. Let me give you an example. I was dating a girl, and she and I were on a double date uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Lauren and I were not married at this point. And um, (laughs) we'd gone out to dinner, and his dad was the pastor of a large church there in Charleston called Seacoast, Greg Surratt. And uh, and so we were talking, and I'm kind of a, you know, history guy. And uh, so I said, you have such a funny last name, the Surratts, like the people who plotted to kill Lincoln. And he said, yes. I wasn't expecting the yes. Um, (laughs) And um, uh, that's the second time. The other time is someone had the last name Dahmer. And I was like, oh, Jeffrey. And they're like, yeah, he's my cousin. Uh, So I I should have learned my lesson. Uh, She was my French teacher. I dropped it immediately uh, and and went someplace safer. But uh, I said, like like Mary Surratt and the conspirators that that shot Lincoln. And he said, yeah, that's it. And he began to tell me the story of his family of how they owned this boarding house in Clinton, Maryland, where they plotted and uh, figured it all out, uh, and uh, how they were, uh, some of them were executed, uh, but the ones who uh, were not executed were just dastardly people. Uh, I mean, just generations of taking advantage of others, of uh, just uh, enemies of God uh, in every sense of, of the word, until, until the 20th century, in the 1940s, one of them, Uh, came to know the Lord Jesus, and he went into full-time ministry. And his son is Greg Surratt, who's in full-time ministry. And now Greg's son, who I had dinner with that night, is in full-time ministry. 
So do you understand the nature of generational sin uh, of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. So, I mean, it is a, a sense in which if that's part of your DNA uh, in your family, uh, it's going to take a lot to thwart that, and it can be. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, if, if you've been one of those people uh, who has suffered abuse, uh, or whether that be spiritual or physical, uh, whatever the way it has manifested itself. We have a wonderful prayer ministry at the Advent called Advent House, and there's Kathy uh, Logue. And, uh, and that kind of stuff, even as Christians, can bind us uh, and hold us back. I mean, how many of us, don't raise your hands, uh, you know, in the quiet of our thoughts, our mind goes racing back to a place that we wish that God would just erase uh, from our minds. But God, even now, by the power of His Holy Spirit, can go into that place uh, and heal you uh, even uh, now. And so the reason why I speak so strongly against white magic and hocus-pocus is because it undermines who Jesus Christ is. It makes it sound as if you have to do something extra uh, in order uh, to loose yourself from this when, in fact, Jesus is enough. Uh, Jesus is enough. Uh, the intervention of the Lord Jesus uh, breaks that generational sin. It's not an extra, extra add-on as if we need to use Christian white magic to combat black magic because that is falling into the very trap that the sons of Sceva have fallen into here. Go, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.